it won't be long, a few months, and they'll start doing reviews, not just of the year, but of the decade. And I suspect that when they review this particular decade of Christian music, that song's going to be somewhere in the top ten. I just, I love the message, love the music, everything about it. It has a way of just connecting us in that relationship with our Father that is, that is so powerful. So uh, we have other music too that's not in the top 10 all over the place. Great stuff that we've learned. One of the songs we've learned in oh, over the last few years is My Lighthouse, which uh, the kids like to actually add some energy to. So I know some of you, you get really scared about using these. You're not sure what to do with them. Shelly's got free hands today. So the clapmaster is going to show us what to do. And we're going to follow along and get some energy. So let's stand and sing. God, our hearts this morning are filled with anticipation for the day that every voice of every person from every age who has trusted in Jesus Christ as forgiver of their sin and leader of their life will be gathered in your throne room and we will all finally have the privilege of singing this song that we know you're going to have us sing, you've told us. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain. Worthy is this Lamb. This Lamb who loved us, who died for us, Though perfect, he didn't have to do it. But he did it all out of love, all out of compassion, all because he was moved for our plight. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, we love you so much. And we thank you for the privilege of being able to sing to you today, to listen to what you have to say to us, and to to leave this place and live it. And in living it, we proclaim the message all the time, worthy is the Lamb. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. For our communion theme for the year, Brian often mentions that we have been using this term, this this phrase that we chose at the beginning of the year as as 2019 began, look up, look up. And And we've applied that in so many different ways. One of the ways that we look up to God is to look into Scripture and to just see see what Jesus said, see what prophets and others spoke. See what is written and allow it to sink into our hearts. And there's a beautiful gospel reading given to us today, found in Luke chapter 10. Jesus has an encounter with a teacher, an expert on the law. We read, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. So he's not coming necessarily with the best of motives. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus wisely turns the question back on him. What is written in the law? How do you read it? He answered, well, I'm to love the Lord my God with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my strength and with all my mind. And I'm to love my neighbor as myself. Jesus responds, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live But he wanted to justify himself. Remember, this was supposed to be a test. So he pokes Jesus a little further. Who is my neighbor? And in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem is higher in elevation. Goes down. Down this road, a remote road. And on that remote road, he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him and went away, 
leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, of course the priest acted, because pastors are always good to everybody who has need. No, he passed by, on the other side no less. Didn't go anywhere close. Soon too, a Levite, this profound teacher, righteous person, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But then came along a scummy Samaritan. Yep, scummy's in the Greek. Then came along a Samaritan, and as he traveled, he came where the man was. And he saw him and he took pity on him. He was moved with compassion deep down inside. He went to him. He bandaged, bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine on them. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and he took care of him there. The next day he had to leave, and so he gave the inn owner two denarii, and he said, look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So he doesn't just take care of him in the moment, he keeps the care going on him. And then Jesus, in his ever so profound way, turns the question back on him. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell in the hand of robbers? How he would love to have said the priest. How he longed to say the Levite. And I suspect he muttered, the Samaritan. Jesus said, go and do likewise. It's not enough to know, you got to do. That's what real looking up is about. It's not enough to know, you've got to do, you've got to act on it. As we hear this passage today, I wonder along the way, as you've been walking on life's road, where has God tweaked your heart? We see need around us all the time, constant need. We don't always get tweaked by it. Sometimes, sometimes we see something, and, and just like this traveler, we are moved with compassion. We have pity. We can feel it deep down inside. We have to do something about this. Other times we just pass by. Sometimes we didn't see the need. Sometimes for some reason, God just didn't give us that tap to say do something about this. And sometimes, obviously, we're so absorbed in our own self-interest that we do nothing about it. I wonder as we move to communion today, can you recall a time in the past week as you've been traveling along life's road that you were tweaked? That, that, that there was that moment that... Mm, Inside, you knew something has to be done about this. Jesus said it's not enough to simply say something needs to be done about this. We're to walk over, bandage the wounds, put them on our donkey, take them to the inn and care for them, and then make sure care continues. So be quiet with that just for a moment. Think of maybe the area that Jesus has has given you that tweak in recent days where he said, I expect you to take pity on this person. If you acted, yay. If you didn't, there's still time to do something about it. Let's be moved with compassion just like Jesus asked us to do. So let's just take a moment to think about that and then we'll move to one of four stations around the room for communion. 
two in the front, two in the back, and then we do have the two gluten-free stations on either side of the stage. Just take a couple moments to reflect. With the taste of communion still very much uh, present in your mouth, would you say the words with me, worthy is the lamb. Let's say it. Worthy is the lamb. Say it again. Worthy is the lamb. And one more time. Worthy is the lamb. You are worthy, Lord, to receive power and honor and glory and strength and dominion. We thank you for your great love for us and expressing it through your death and reminding us every week of that sacrifice for our sins. In Jesus' name, amen. So our servers are going to come right now and receive the morning offering. As they do, I just want to say thank you to you for, for your faithful and consistent giving. Uh, as summer continues, a lot of churches during this t season tend to get a little bit of a dip in giving as a dip in attendance happens, and we thank you for your continued uh, continued faithfulness in that. Every week as you come in, we have uh, friendly, warm greeters at the door who hand you a piece of paper and uh, give you the chance to catch up and read what's going on around Southfield. On the back side, you'll see there's a calendar and some details. A lot of you like the, the playlist. You want to know what was that song we did today, so you can go home and and Spotify it or pull out your 8-track, whatever you want to do. And then, uh, and then on the front side, especially down the middle, uh, there are relevant, fresh announcements of what's going on around church. And many of them right now have to do with what's coming in the fall and serving opportunities that are coming up. So there are some opportunities, for example, in big kids. Uh, one of them, they're looking to expand the team of uh, teachers that teach in big kids. And if, if you've been in here and never been in there, you don't know what teaching looks like in there. It's not, it's not kind of the old-fashioned uh, grab a manual and read it to the kids or something like that. It, in fact, it looks a little bit more like this, where you're, where you're presenting to the kids in a, in a vibrant and uh, active way. And so, uh, you know, God has used that role through the years to really stretch some people. That was, that was one of the entry points for someone like John Beaker and others who, who got the chance to, to teach for the first time there and realized that God had embedded them, embedded them a gift, a teaching gift. So, so that opportunity is there. You can either go to the welcome desk or, or contact Jeremy Jawoda, who's in charge of that ministry. Um, and then there are opportunities for the kids to get involved, as we said last week, in the crew, which again gets our kids from early on involved in, in serving around church and serving other people. And then there's just a long list there of all the different opportunities that are available all the time. So we do believe that one of the ways you get plugged in around a, a, a faith community is to get involved in serving. Uh, it does a lot of things. For one thing, it provides you a natural connection with other people, the people you're serving with. It also provides you that sense of uh, internal reward that says, hey, I'm, I'm doing something to help someone else. This isn't just about me. So I'd encourage you as, as the fall begins and we start looking at a variety of uh, serving opportunities to get involved in an area and try one. One of the things that's been going on during the first service this month in July, big kids are in with us, you know that, and so because that room was free, uh, there's, been a, there's been a group meeting in there 
going through the, the book by Erwin Lutzer, One Minute After You Die. They've actually still got two more weeks, and uh, if you want to join in on that class, we'd love for you to do that. I, I suspect that any time along the way, they would love for you to come on in and learn. Uh, they, they asked some deep and profound spiritual questions in that group. Last week, I heard about one of them. Uh, someone said that as the group was going on, you know, someone raised their hand and said, so, one minute after I die, do I look like George Clooney or Dave Papish? <laughs> and I'm kind of torn because I think they're both pretty good-looking men. So I guess, I guess the idea is you're just good-looking when you get to heaven. But anyway, uh, yeah, good stuff going on in that group and, uh, and stuff that we need to learn and know. So here's what we're going to do right now. A little bit different order than usual. Uh, because the kids are with us and we want to kind of keep active and moving and because we want to keep engaged with our Savior who is so worthy of our praise, we're going to stand and sing another song. God, we want to run and not quit. That, that is our goal and our desire. We know that this life you've given us is a race, and, and you intend for us to run it with all of our hearts. We look forward to the day that uh, that veil will be torn, and we will see you face to face, and the, and the goal of our salvation will be realized, that we will finally have the trophy for which we've longed, and that trophy is you. We look forward to that. And in the meantime, God, give us the endurance, the patience, and the commitment to run consistently and faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So we start a new series today. It's called Baggage. And uh, I thought that it would be a good idea to talk a little bit about a question I'm asked from time to time. And that is, so how do you come up with what you're going to talk about? I get asked this. People are like, how do you decide what a series is going to be, what topics is going to happen? And I won't run through all of them, but, but this particular series is, a, is evidence of one style of the way these things kind of unfold. Sometimes God just kind of does this to me. He just starts flicking me, you know what I mean? Now, it's a spiritual thing, really. I mean, he just kind of, he irritates me in a good way, not a bad way. I'm not irritated. I'm just, I'm just like, Oh, that's kind of it's bugging me. What is that all about? And I, I actually started getting bugged sometime this spring when uh, we looked at a passage in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, the writer is referring to the chapter before where he goes through this long list of people in what's known as the Hall of Faith. People who had just run the race with endurance and, and run very, very well and receive that crown for, for running ever so well. So he says, we're surrounded by all these people who have run the race already. He said, because of that, let's lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race set before us. And he talks about that ultimate prize, when that veil will tear and we will see Jesus, and, and the, the goal of our race will be realized to be with him and to be like him. And as I read this passage, I couldn't help but for some reason it was tweaking me. It was like, okay, so we're supposed to run. And we're supposed to run well. But sometimes we don't. I live in a neighborhood of runners. Uh, the person who lives across the street is a cross-country coach. And so he gets out and runs. And, and honestly, it's fun to watch him run. It's kind of, he runs the way a runner's supposed to run. He's, he's the right weight for running. 
He's, he's in shape, and, and he, runs, he runs in a committed way, and he runs really well. There are other people in my neighborhood that run that should walk or something else, you know, because, I mean, they run by and you just kind of go, oh, that hurts. That, that, what's going on there? And, and by the way, if I ran, that would be me. You see, it's, it's, it's just, it's a beautiful thing to watch somebody run when they're trained for it and they're unencumbered. When, when they're just, when they are ready for the race, there is something beautiful about watching a person run a race beautifully. And there's something kind of hard about watching a person who's carrying along a little bit too much baggage, you know, who's still got the Doritos under this arm and holding their pop and, and, they're, and they're trying to, it just, it's something about that just doesn't work, right? And the same is true in the spiritual life. There will be seasons in our spiritual life that we run with such grace and beauty that we're like, this is what I was made to do. I mean, we just, we just run with such freedom that it's tremendous and it's beautiful. And other times we're running and as we do, it is as if we have a blindfold on and a backpack and we're stumbling along and we're just, we're just not getting it done. We're not running the race with endurance. We're not running because, because we're entangled. We're entangled with weights. We're entangled with sin. We're entangled with all this stuff that's just preventing us from running the race with beauty. And so that was kind of bugging me. It's like, okay, so what is it in our lives? What is it in our lives that, that kind of weighs us down, that keeps us from running the race the way that God intended? And what would it look like if we were able to throw that off and really run the race the way God intended? And as I thought about it, so this is the way this continues to morph. It's like we're going into summer, and on summer, inevitably, if you go on vacation, you take stuff with you, and you pack it in bags, and you put it either on the car top or in the back of the van, or you put it on the plane. You're taking something along, and, and we tend to refer to that as baggage. And for me, I don't know, especially planes, I don't fly nearly as much as a lot of you, but these things ruin trips for me. I, I just... Ever since 9-11, TSA, and uh, airline regulations, every time I have to pack a bag, I kind of hyperventilate. It, it kind of ruins the trip. I'm like, I'm going to be the guy who brings a bag, and it's one inch too big. I'm going to be the guy who brings a bag and forgot that I have my Uzi in there. I'm going to be the guy who, who packs the bag and finds out that my, my shampoo is a four-ounce bottle and it was supposed to be a three-ounce bottle. And, and this whole thing, I'm not kidding, from the moment it used to be you'd arrive at the airport and it was like, let's go, this is fun. And instead I arrive and I'm like, until I get this thing checked, life's not going to be very happy, right? I'm, just, I'm, going to be, I'm going to be tense. We went to Boston last summer and when I got back home, I was emptying out my, my, the, the bag that I carry along, my, my, my um, book bag. And as I'm, I'm opening it up, I found in there, I found in there that I had a knife. And I'm like, oh my, oh my. I mean, not a, you know, not a machete. Come on, get, get that picture out of your head. But it was a pocket knife, but still I'm like, and you know what, if, I don't, if, if in LaGuardia they'd have said, Mr. Papp, what are you doing here? And taking my knife, I would have been really bummed. So, so you know, I'm, I'm looking at this and I'm thinking, I don't really like baggage. Baggage bugs me. 
I, I like freedom. If, I, if only I were rich enough to arrive at the place and just buy everything again, you know, and throw it out after I leave. But, but baggage, baggage tends to weigh us down on the trip. So, just thinking about baggage, thinking about the way that we get weighed down in our own journey in life. But then something else started to happen. I'm like, but here's the thing. When I do pack that bag, I get kind of excited because I'm going somewhere. You know, I'm about to go on a trip. I'm about to go somewhere that's fun. In fact, the things I'm putting in here, minus the accidental knife, the things that I'm putting in here are things that I actually need when I get there. And in that moment for me, the baggage isn't baggage anymore. Now it's, now it's luggage. It's, it, ceased, it ceased being something that's, that, that's weighing me down, that's preventing me from being able to take the trip. And instead, I'm looking at it and going, hey, this is actually something I need to travel along the way. And so as I started processing that, I thought, how many times is it true that the thing that is entangling us in the race, not sin, of course, the thing that is entangling us in the race is actually the thing that provides us the luggage we need for the rest of the journey. How often is it that, that the thing that we actually view as the thing that is stopping us from running well is something that when God redeems it, when he brings something beautiful out of it, we're actually able to see that it's not baggage anymore, but it's luggage. It's something that we can carry along with us along the way. And so I started just going through mentally all these different things that weigh us down. Not only that weigh us down, but then things that, if they're redeemed, if they're, if they're, if they're bought by Jesus and used properly, now I have the equipment I need for the journey. And it took my mind back to something we talked about a few years ago. And it's something that I want to revisit because I think in the past we only saw it as baggage. And in fact, for a lot of us, we decided we need to, we need to eliminate this. This needs to go away. Or, or, we, or we see it as our weak spot. But actually, if it's redeemed by Jesus, it becomes our luggage for the journey. It helps us to journey not only as individuals, but it actually makes our community of believers more effective. So we talked a while back about this concept of, of four metaphors. There are these four metaphors that were designed, uh, I first heard about them from a, a church in Wisconsin, but they were designed by uh, a Bible teacher and counselor named Larry Crabb. And he looked at these four different ways that we as human beings try to live life apart from God. Because honestly, that, that's what we do. That's what we do. Not only as non-believers, but sometimes as believers, we try to do the journey apart from God. We decide we're going to make this thing work on our own. And we have different things that we do. Sometimes we just try to build our own city because we don't trust God that God is going to do it for us. Sometimes we dig our own well, looking for pleasure and fulfillment in, in ways that are apart from God. Sometimes we light our own fire. We've got to know more. And the more we know, the more we'll be able to walk the journey we believe. And sometimes we just whitewash. We see the problems, but we don't want to deal with them. And so we just, we just plaster them over. We cover them up. We try to make life work apart from God. And as we looked at that in the past, we looked at the ways in which these are baggage. But truthfully, I believe that when God redeems them, 
They can be used as luggage that takes us on the journey. Now, for some of you, you've heard this before. You've heard parts of this before, and so you understand this. For some of you, you're brand new to this, and this is kind of like this is going to be new learning. And so trying to balance out those who have heard it as well as those for whom it's new. But it really is, I believe, a core part of the teaching uh, around, around Southfield as we try to understand the things that hold us back as well as the things that propel us on life's journey. As you look at these four metaphors, here are two things you need to understand. One of the four describes your primary mode of operation. As we look at those four and as we talk through them, you're going to probably go, yeah, that's me. That's the way I operate more often than not. But the reality is we operate in different seasons and in different situations out of each of the four. So even though you may be a firelighter, sometimes you're going to turn on your whitewasher. Even though, even though you may be a, a city builder, sometimes you're going to go dig a well. So we, we tend to flow in and out of all of them from time to time, but there is one that is primarily you. The first one we're going to look at today is the city builder. And as you look at the city builder, you go back to the very beginning of the Bible. We're only four chapters in, and already the world is a complete mess. Chapter 3, there's sin enters in the world. Uh, the garden season is over. There's separation from God. And you get this bright spot at the beginning of chapter 4 because you're like, oh good, a baby is born. Babies are coming into the world. Certainly good things are going to happen as children are born into the world. We don't even wait a generation until sibling rivalry comes into the world. We see in Genesis chapter 4, starting in the second verse, it says, when they grew up, these, these brothers, Abel became a shepherd, cultivated the ground, and when it came time to harvest... Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift to the best portion of the first, first lambs of his flock. It says the Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but did not accept Cain and his gift. And this made Cain angry, and he looked dejected. Now, I know for a lot of us, we look at this passage, and the first thing we ask is, how in the world did these guys know what they were supposed to bring to God? Because if we read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we find nothing, no instruction from God about this is the offering you're supposed to bring, this is the offering you're not supposed to bring. So how in the world did Cain know that he shouldn't have brought fruit and vegetables? How in the world did Abel know that he should have brought a lamb? And what we need to understand is that there were conversations with God. Remember those walks in the garden in the cool of the day? There were conversations with God that are not recorded in Scripture. There are instructions given by God not recorded, but these people knew. They knew what they were supposed to do. God didn't put Cain in a position where he was trying to guess what he should do in order to please God. He knew what he was supposed to do. And in fact, what we see here is some of the foundational character of a city builder. City builders are really into Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. I'm going to do He was going to bring a sacrifice. That's the right thing to do. But he knew what God wanted. He knew what would please God. He decided, he knew, this is what God wants. And that's, that's a little bit of that city builder. The city builder has some, has some strong self-will. They, they, they're going to push it through. They're going to make it happen. They're going to see this thing through. 
And so what happens when this guy, with this guy when, when the offering isn't the right offering? He goes, to, he goes to the city builder's prime emotion. He goes to anger. He gets ticked off. He's kind of furious. God, how in the world? This is the best eggplant I've ever grown. How in the world can you not want my eggplant? And God, as a beautiful, a wonderful, a good, good father, does what a good parent should do doesn't just start lecturing. He asks him a question. Why are you angry? He gives him the opportunity to explore his heart. He gives him the opportunity to go deep, to, to ask, to, to dig deeply and, and ask, what, what's going on here? Why are you angry? Why do you look dejected? You'll be accepted if you do what is right. So clearly, if God is saying you can do what is right, God had told him what is righteous. He told him the right thing to do. But if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, eager to control you. But you must subdue it and be its master. Already here, we're, we're, we're hearing hints of what the writer is going to say in Hebrews chapter 12. That, that sin is always, it's already, it's always ready to reach out and grab your leg and trip you up in the race. And you've got to be aware of that. You've got to be aware of temptations. You've got to be aware of temptations that go along with your wiring. You've got to be aware and you've got to avoid it. You've got to run away from it, not run into it. And we know in the story that one day Cain decides he's going to solve the problem. Rather than changing the offering that he's going to bring, he's just going to eliminate the competition. Takes Abel out into a field, kills him, he buries him. God comes to him, where's your brother? Am I my brother's keeper? That's not not my business. The Lord says to him, "Uh, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. You are now cursed and banished from the ground, which has swallowed up your brother's blood. No longer will the ground yield good crops for you. No matter how hard you work, from now on, you will be a homeless wanderer on the earth. God has made clear to him, the roots you had are gone. They're cut off. It's done. And Cain has a response to this. He's like, this is too heavy for me to bear. I can't handle this. There's no way I can do this. And beyond that, as I, if I'm a homeless wanderer, others are going to find me. They're going to try to kill me. And God lets him know what's going to happen with that. And so he goes and he settles in the land of Ad, Nod, east of Eden. And then we get the verse. Chapter, chapter 4, verse 17, the last part, it says, Then Cain founded a city which he named Enoch after his son. The city builder is great at, at building, building his own fort, taking care of himself, making sure that his life, her life, is well cared for. And they're not going to trust anyone else. There's no way that they can trust anyone else to take care of them. They have to provide for themselves. They have to make sure things happen for them. Very, very self-sufficient very strong-willed, I'm going to make sure this happens. Nobody's going to help me, not even God. I give you a, a list of all the different characteristics of this person, a person who is just determined. There's a, there is a drivenness about him. They're, they're extremely hardworking. A lot of people around them would call them workaholics, and they might even call themselves workaholics themselves. They're people who are often described as self-made. They did it. They're making it happen. They pour all kinds of resources, all kinds of time, all kinds of energy into the project that they're working on. It's so important. They're marked by self-effort. 
And they're pretty, they're pretty proud of what they did, they accomplished, they built. They're not always really great at mentioning the team because there is no team in their mind. They're a team of one, and they're making it happen. They have a hard time getting close to people. They hate feeling inadequate. They hate feeling like they're unable to do something. They're kind of stubborn, and they're afraid to admit that they've failed. Very independent, hard to be vulnerable, hard to ask for help. They will resist collaboration. I mean, they know what they want to do. They're going to get it done. They seem tough. But truth is, if you were to scratch a little bit, you'd find there's a really broken person inside. And their underlying issue is trust. They just have a hard time trusting anyone else. So they decided along the way, they have to make it happen for themselves. Their key phrase, I will. I will. I'm going to make it happen. Because the bottom line is they believe they can trust absolutely no one. Now, we've talked in the past about how this is baggage, how this holds us down. Because, I mean, if we're trusting no one, that is a really hard life to live. But how do we move from from the baggage that weighs us down to the luggage for a journey? How is it actually, in some ways, good to be a city builder? How How does it provide you a good thing as you're moving forward? And first of all, we ask that question is, how does it move from baggage to luggage in our relationship with God? One of the, I think, one of the most beautiful contrasts in Scripture, in the narrative, in Genesis, is found in chapters 11 and then in chapter 12. In chapter 11, we have the story of the people of Babel who decide they're going to build a tower. And the tower is all about one thing. We're going to make a name for ourselves We're going to depend on no one else, no one else in the universe. We're going to depend on us in order to make our life happen. In order to be famous, we're going to get this done. And if we don't do it, we're going to be scattered all over the face of the earth. So we're going to cluster. And there's a lot of self-will and self-determination here. You flip the page and you go to chapter 12. And in chapter 12, God has a conversation with this man named Abram. He says, I want you to leave your country, your people, and your father's household to a land I will show you. And here's what God says to him. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. Now, in chapter 11, you have a group of people who have said, we will make a name for ourselves. And in chapter 12, you have a God who says, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to be the one to make your name great. I'm going to be the one to do this. Remember the key phrase of the city builder, I will? The city builder needs to come to a place that they're able to say, God will. And I am willing to be used by God in every possible way. You see, here's what life is all about. Life is a series of invitations to trust. God is constantly calling on you and asking you, do you trust me? Will you trust me? Are you going to trust me? And the city builder says, I cannot. I just can't. If I depend on God, I'm going to end up homeless. If I depend on God, I'm going to end up without a great name. I've got to do this for me. But what happens instead when we say, God, not I will 
but you will. And I'll lean into you and your desires. I will actually decide. I will decide to trust you. Life is this series of invitations to trust. I hope you've seen that by now. That along the way, God keeps saying to you, are you going to trust me? Are you going to trust me with this? No, seriously, are you going to trust me with this? And we keep saying, I'm not sure I can. But when we finally let go, when we finally say, yes, God, I know you're the one I can trust. Oh, man. That, that's when we start transitioning from baggage to luggage, something we need for the journey. When we, even though we're able to do it ourselves, we say, but I trust you more to do it for me. So there's a movement that also takes place within me. There's a movement, a, a, a change that takes place in me that I move from, again, baggage to luggage. The more resourceful, life-giving city builder chooses the path of reflection. Did you see that with Cain? God was asking Cain to reflect. Why are you angry? Why are you downcast? The, God invites the city builder to think. And you know what? City builders don't like to think. City builders like to do and ask questions later. They, they're, they're human steamrollers. They're going to get life done. And, you know, there aren't too many steamrollers that say, hmm, I might crush that. Of course I might crush that. I'm a steamroller. And you just go. But the, the, the city builder moves from baggage to luggage when they actually stop long enough to live a life of reflection. Typical city builder resists reflection. They just re roll forward. And if they reflect at all, all they're doing is recounting results. They just tell you about all the things they've done, all the things they've accomplished. They don't want to talk a lot about the process, how the sausage was made. We're going to leave that along. We're not going to talk about all the, all the corpses that it took to get here. We're just going to talk about the notches in the belt, the things that I was able to accomplish but what happens if the city builder starts becoming a person who's actually reflective, who stops and thinks? You know what happens? They move from baggage to luggage. That's what happens. What if we started thinking about our intentions? Why did I do that? That's what God asked Cain, right? Why did you do that? Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? What's going on there? Why did you do that? And again, a city builder typically doesn't like the why question. Because, because if they thought about it long enough, they'd find that it probably came from an ugly place and they don't want to think about it. They know that sometimes bad things have to happen in order for good things to happen. You got to break a few eggs in order to make an omelet. That's the way it goes. They don't want to think a lot about their intentions along the way. Was this really all just about me? I don't think about that in a spiritual context. The more resourceful city builder also reflects on their interactions. So why is that person angry with me? Why did that relationship fall apart? What happened to that person over there? And they actually stop long enough to start to see the ways in which their actions have caused really bad reactions on the parts of other people. They start to see the ways in which they use people instead of teaming with them. They'll talk team. They'll talk team big time. But they, what they really mean is, I, you have something I need, and until I, I, I'll, I'll use you as long as I need you, and when I don't need you anymore, boom, I'm done with you. 
And the more resourceful city builder is constantly thinking about the invitation. They're thinking about where is God drawing me in to trust him, to actually trust him more instead of just getting it done on myself. So for the city builder, as you take the time to reflect, and again, remember, there's a little city builder in all of us, so you don't just kind of go, don't have to worry about that one. We all have moments that we decide we're going to get it done ourselves. We all have moments that we decide we're going to use people to get things done. We all have these moments. The person to ponder is the Apostle Paul. And the passage to ponder is Philippians chapter 3, where he goes through his list of accomplishments He is the best of the best. He has been a great Hebrew steamroller. He's gotten the job done. And in that passage, he says, in all the things I've accomplished, they are worth nothing compared to knowing Christ. He recognizes that everything up until that point had been about him building his own city. And and God said, I have something better for you. I actually want you to enter into relationship with me. Now, the other area that that we want to explore is how this person then moves from baggage to luggage with others. And and part of what I'd like to do with that is kind of save this, because you don't necessarily know what the other three are, I want to save that so that you can see how actually these four types can work positively together when God redeems them. But let me give you this piece for now. A lot of times a city builder is viewed as a bully and a bulldog and a steamroller. They just get work done. And there are a lot of people who will avoid that kind of person. They want nothing to do with them. They stay far, far, far away from them. But here's what we realize. When, when a city builder is a redeemed city builder, what you have is a person who has tremendous vision and they recognize the connection to God in all of it. The city builder is able sometimes to have faith for us. The city builder is, because we're going to find that some of the other types, they don't have a lot of faith. They don't like risk. They don't like, they don't like putting their foot out there. And the city builder in community can be the person who says, I believe with God this is possible. And we need that person. We need that person with that entrepreneurial spirit who, not, who doesn't just do things because a project needs to be done, but who actually recognizes God wants to do this and we can join in with him together. I promise you as, as we look at this and as you just start thinking through your own life, you're going to realize that there's so many areas that you have brokenness, you have wrecked relationships, you have incidents in the past that were hurtful, you have all these things that are in the mix, and you've only viewed them as the baggage that keeps you from running the race well. But look, just like Joseph said to his brothers, What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God has a tremendous way of taking all of our brokenness. And when we hand it to him, he says, it's no longer baggage. I'm redeeming it as luggage for the journey. 
And so you can think more about the areas in which the city builder impacts you. But to be honest, I'd like, you, I'd like you to just think more broadly. What are the areas of life that you viewed as your greatest flaws and faults and problems? And God's saying, don't you get that? Don't you get it yet? If you would just allow me to redeem that. You've got the, you've got the luggage you need for a tremendous journey with me. Father God, I pray that you would open our eyes. So often we see our brokenness and we get stuck in our brokenness. All we can see is the ways that we are not enough or the ways that we would be better if this or that or something else hadn't happened in our lives. And you're actually giving us, giving us the raw material for the journey ahead, taking the broken and making it beautiful. I pray that we would open our eyes and our hearts to the fact that you can do that and you want to do that. We love you and thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you next week.